Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we'll get those to you. If you need a Bible, all right? And when you get that, open with us to Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Today's passage is one of my favorite stories of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. One of my absolute favorites. It's two stories, uh, but these two, I, I love them so much, and, and, and here's why. This is what you're going you're gonna to see in this narrative. There is such a personal quality to these two stories. Very personal. It's as if you can be transported into the room, go back in time, and, and, and feel what they're feeling in the moment. See what they're seeing. It's one of those kind of stories. It's dynamic like that. Almost like a film where you can be there in the moment even though you're just watching it on the screen. It's got that kind of quality to it. And I think what you see in these stories is you really get to see Jesus up close and personal in living color. That's what these two stories in Mark chapter 2, it's the kind of quality they have. And the Gospels in general can have this effect on a person where they, they, they come to life in a certain kind of way and you feel like you're there, right? Now that's true, but there's also something else that's true. Many of us have been reading the Gospels and following Jesus for a long time, some of us for decades. And what's also true is that sometimes you can drift into this certain dry forgetfulness of how truly unique and special this Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, really is. That can happen to you. Where Jesus, you would say, I believe in him. You would say, I'm devoted to him. You would say, I've been following him for 12 years, 20 years, 50 years. But there's something that can happen, even if you're active in reading the Gospels, where Jesus it's like the light gets sucked out of him, and he's not so much a living person, a living reality that you encounter in the text and in prayer, but, but, but he becomes almost like this, this, this object of history. This, this, this kind of even can become like an idol where Jesus, if you're honest with yourself, can sometimes become lifeless in your experience. Not in your belief. Some of you would say, I would ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? You'd have orthodox um, answer to that. You'd have a biblical answer to that. But if I ask, what's been your experience of him personally over the last month or six months? It might be a different answer. And in today's stories, two of them, Mark chapter 2, they have this quality to bring Jesus back to life to you in your experience. It's been happening to me all week. That's why I love these two stories. They'll challenge and they can change that dry forgetfulness that we all drift into. Okay? So let's, let me share these stories with you this morning. Um, but as we read them, you got to understand, this is a real event from the life of Jesus. Now, I don't know the day of the week. I don't know what the weather was. But it's a real day in the life of Jesus, a historical event that happened in the first century in Israel. Well documented. And when I read it, here's the one thing you need to do. Try and put yourself in the story. Try 
God's given us this great faculty called imagination and intellect and emotion. Try and even ask God's spirit, even now, that he would help you enter into the story. Imagine that you're there. You're one of the people that's in the room and you're sitting there and you're listening to Jesus teach as all these different things are about to transpire. Okay, so let's pick up. We're going to read it slowly. I'm going to pause in the middle of it. We'll do a little bit of, you know, gas break, gas break. Okay, and I'm going to add some commentary to try and bring this um, story to life. So Mark chapter 2, let's look at the first two verses. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. Pause there. Packed house in some home. Homes back then might have had a courtyard. Everything is full, right? Let's say you got in. You're one of those that got in or you're at the door peeking in. It's cramped. It probably was hot. But you made it. You, you got in. You got the ticket, free ticket. But you're there and you're hanging on every word of this curious new rabbi. That's from Nazareth, not where most rabbis come from, and his name is Jesus. And you've probably heard some stories of his miracles. That's why you're interested. That's why you're there. And you're saying, we got to go. We got to go. You know, like that concert or that thing that you, that event. Maybe it was the UGA game for you last night. By the way, Stetson Bennett, I mean, good gracious, anointed by God. I mean, he is playing fantastic. <laughs> He's like grown three years. Anyway, what was I saying? You're there. You're in the room. You made it, right? It says it's packed. This is what you got to do when you read the scriptures. You, you have to try and put yourself there. Verse 3. And they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So look at that. Packed house. There's four friends carrying a man in some kind of stretcher, some kind of cloth, some kind of thing. A paralytic. One who cannot walk. One who could not walk on their own. What must have happened there? Think of it. They had heard the stories of Jesus healing others. Just before this, Mark told the story of Jesus healing the leper. Just before this, he talked about how the whole city gathered at the door of Simon Peter's house. And it says he healed many of various diseases and he casted out many uh, powers of the demonic. So stories are circulating in this region, this was a rural region. It's Capernaum. It's near the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's beautiful. It kind of looks like Colorado in the summer, but the mountains aren't as high. It's really beautiful. I've been there, and it's still, like, it hasn't been overdeveloped. And so there's four friends. They have a friend who can't walk, who's been a paralytic possibly since birth, who's suffering. In that time in society, we don't have the same kind of... Um, handicap help that we have now. And so this person was suffering, couldn't work. Uh, who knows their backstory? But these four friends care about this man. And they say, that Jesus of Nazareth is here in Capernaum. He's teaching. He's like holding court right now. Let's try and get him there. Maybe it can happen for him. I heard it happen for so-and-so. Let's get him there. Let's just, if we can just get him before Jesus, maybe it'll work. Maybe he'll be healed. They're desperate. Their friend is suffering. They want to help. So they carry him. Four men, it says in verse 3. Look at verse 4. 
See, multiple storylines happening at the same time. And when they could not get near him, near Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Pause there. You're in the room. It's crowded, packed, stuffy, hot, hanging on every word of Jesus who's claiming to be the Messiah. You've heard the stories about his miracles. All of a sudden, as everyone is fixed on Jesus, it's crowded, you start hearing crackling in the roof. And immediately, everyone, everyone's eyes go up. And what you see is these four men ripping this roof apart. Back then, in that time period, the roofs were flat. Sometimes you would have a garden on them. Sometimes you would go there in the cool of the garden and ask Peter's what? On the roof praying, right? When he has that vision, they were flat surfaces, wood, straw, mud, various things made with these roofs. These four friends, desperate. If we can just get him before Jesus. So they take desperate measures. They don't own the house. They're not the owners. Right? If you start ripping into my roof, you better have a really, really good reason. Because roofs ain't cheap. I had to replace one. And then we moved like six months later. What were we thinking? We don't know. They're ripping the roof. You can hear the noise of it ripping. And everyone's eyes are up. And the straw is falling down. The mud is falling down. You're wondering, who in the world? What in the world? Jesus has been interrupted. He has stopped teaching. And everyone's gaze is up here. And as they're ripping up this roof and making an opening, all of a sudden you're wondering, why? Why are they doing this? All of a sudden you see this man on some kind of bed, some kind of cloth, some kind of thing with ropes, four ropes. And you see these friends slowly, very slowly. And silently, he stopped the whole show, lowering this man down and down and down. And you just, everyone's eyes are just going with him as he comes down. And slowly and silently, they lay him right before Jesus, the teacher. And you can imagine, these four friends have a lot of faith. We can just do it. We'll worry about the roof. You have that friend. We'll worry about that later. Just do it and apologize later, right? We'll we'll worry about the roof later. We just got to get them there. And so these four friends are filled with faith that if they can pull this off. I wonder, though, what the paralytic man felt like. What if it doesn't work? What if I'm lying there and it doesn't happen? We've interrupted this entire thing. We've possibly insulted the rabbi. Am I going to go home in shame? Am I going to be embarrassed again? What if it doesn't work? And so I just imagine this man who's in immense suffering laying there and possibly not even being able to look up at Jesus. Certainly maybe not in the crowd. You can feel the tension in the room. Everyone is wondering. What is Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? Is he offended by what these men have just done? We find out in verse 5. 
It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, when he looked up and saw these four men and this suffering man, when he saw their faith, it says, Jesus said right there to the man, to the paralytic man, these words, son, your sins are forgiven. What an odd thing to say. Son, you can imagine Jesus looking tenderly into this man's eyes who's been in immense suffering for who knows how long. Son, your sins are forgiven. If you would have been sitting there, if I would have been sitting there looking on to that, I would have said, Everyone would have been caught off guard by that statement. And leaning in even more, his sins are forgiven. And then you might have had this thought, like the scribes, those were some of the religious authorities at that time. You might have had this thought, he can't do that. He can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. What's this Jesus doing? Forgiving sins. Look what it says in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were gathered, sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the right response. They knew their Torah. They knew their scriptures Really, really well. They're the scribes. And they said, he can't do that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Let me tell you about blasphemy. Blasphemy in their time period under their law was punishable by death. Let me read you the scripture. Leviticus comes out of the law, comes out of the Torah. Leviticus 24, 16. It says this in very clear language, black and white. Jesus would have known the passage. Whoever, it says, blasphemes, that's what he did, the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. There's a really good scholar named James Edwards. He comments on this passage and he writes this. Apart from the act of absolution on the day of atonement, not even the chief priests could forgive sins or give promise of such, whether individually or corporately. Who can forgive sins but God alone, responds the scribes. Edwards writes, they are right. Only God can forgive sins. Exodus 34, Psalms 103, Isaiah 43, goes on and on. Indeed, he goes on, not even the Messiah would claim such power. Strack and Billerbeck, other scholars, rightly conclude that there is no place known to us in which the Messiah has the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins from his own power. He ends with this. Forgiveness of sins remains everywhere the exclusive right of God. Only God can forgive sins. Which is the point. Which is the point. 
This wasn't just a mere man, Jesus, standing before them. He claimed not just to be Jesus of Nazareth, not just to be the Messiah, but to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. This wasn't just a man. This was something, someone who has come on God's authority, claiming to be God. Watch what happens. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, so Jesus speaks, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority, because that's what they questioned, on earth to forgive sins. It says, he looks and says to the paralytic man, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. Talk about upping the ante in the moment. So now as he forgives sins, now as he told them that, hey, I have the authority to do this. And he says, just to show you I have the authority, he looks down at this man and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. If I'm there, <laughs> I mean, you got me. I'm so locked in. Did he just tell him to get up and walk? What's going to happen? Is it going to work? And then this man, who hasn't walked in who knows how long, can't stand on his own, says in verse 12, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Anyone seen the Chosen TV series? Yeah, it's pretty good. I want to show you a clip from there. A lot of Bible stuff, TV stuff, isn't done that well. But every so often, you have someone that does it really well and keeps it close to the text. And I think the Chosen does a pretty good job. And I, and I want you to watch this, and I want you to see this kind of come to life. And so it's everything I just read. Um, but done by this TV series. So I'm going to ask us to bring down the lights. It's about three minutes. We're basically in a theater. Let's bring down all those lights, and then let's go ahead and play this. And I want you to see this passage play out. Who is this? 
which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk. It's easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Can you imagine what that man felt like walking home that day? And what about his friends, the ones on the roof? What they felt like, what they thought of this Jesus. And what about the scribes, who in some senses were right? They just had Jesus wrong. They didn't exactly know who he was. Can you imagine what you would have thought and felt like sitting there that day, seeing that happen? I would have thought to myself this, who is this man? Who is this man? The story goes on. It's hard to move from that one because it's so powerful. But there's one other story I want to share with you. Again, I love these two stories because they have such a personal quality of bringing Jesus to life. This one's in verse 13. In this next scene, we have a few different characters. There's Jesus. There's Jesus' disciples. 
There are the onlookers that are there. And then there's this man who goes by two names. His name is Levi. He also goes by Matthew. He's a tax collector. And what you need to understand about tax collectors in that time period is they were the most hated person in that society. Here's why. Rome, the great empire of Rome, had invaded and occupied and taken over their entire nation. And then the way that they funded everything was they taxed the mess out of its citizens. But the way they would do that is they would conspire with people from that nation, Israelites, which Levi or Matthew was one of them. And they would convince them to betray their people and to become an official of the Roman state and to be the one who spoke the language who could get as much money out of his own people, his neighbors, his friends, those that he grew up with as he possibly could. They hated tax collectors. Let me give you a historical example. Again, the scholar James Edwards kind of let you into the society and what they thought of them, what they thought of Levi. It says this, the Mishnah and Talmud, although written later, register scathing judgments of tax collectors. So it's, it's written there. Lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue and a cause of disgrace to his family. So they're totally exiled. No part in the society, even their own family. It goes on. Listen to this. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean, which is a big deal in Jewish society. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes and from that tax collector was deemed robbery. End quote. Let me give you a Southern English. They ain't liked. All right. No one liked this person. They were hated by all. In some ways for good reason. Even Jesus' own disciples hated tax collectors. They would hate to have to pass by the booth of the tax collector with a line of their own neighbors and family and friends just being pummeled by the Roman Empire and by this man Levi. They all hated him, even his own disciples. But Jesus does not share their same hatred. He might not have agreed with what they were doing, but he didn't let it corrupt the person behind it, Matthew. He didn't hate him. Look at verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. Of course, he just did this miracle. And he was teaching them. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Let's imagine the scene. You're walking, you're some of the disciples, you're with Jesus. You got all this crowd of people, and you're teaching. It says you're passing by this booth where there were the lines of people giving their taxes. And all of a sudden, your, your rabbi, Jesus, 
hesitates. What are you doing? You're trying to get away from the tax booth. Let's not, this ain't a pit stop. We're going to get taxed. Let's keep moving. What are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus, something inside him makes him stop. And he looks at Matthew. And there's something going on inside him between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father, that he looks at this man. And you can imagine his disciples. They've seen him call people to follow him before. They're probably thinking in his mind, oh, oh, no, 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 no. This crosses the line, Jesus. I mean, we know you're different, but this is too different. You can't do this. There are some boundaries still left. One of them was called a zealot. A zealot is someone who thought what we should do with Rome is rise up a military coup and take them on by violence. They would have thought the only thing for Matthew is to kill him. And you can just imagine them saying, no, 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 no. And Jesus looks at him in the eyes and says, I choose you. Come, follow me. Story goes on. Doesn't just end there. That's scandalous enough. But then look at verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, whose house? Well, Levi, Matthew. It says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So what Jesus is doing here is against all the rules. He's sitting with them. Table fellowship was a big deal in that society. I want to give you one more scholarly quote so that you get how scandalous this really is. Again, from James Edwards. It says this. It brings Jesus again in contact with unclean persons, not with unclean diseases, as in the case of the leper, remember earlier, but with an individual who, who because of his collaboration with the Gentile occupation, is both morally contemptuous and ritually unclean. It may be that contact with Levi was actually more offensive than contact with a leper, since a leper's condition was not chosen, whereas a tax collector's was. Not okay. What's interesting is that Jesus pursues them, wants to eat at their house and not the other way around. Look what happens in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, come here. They're in a conversation. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They pull his disciples aside and they ask him that really good question. Look at Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he heard them ask the question. They were close enough. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Everyone's a sinner, right? That's part of his message. Everyone has fallen short and is not walking in communion and and in God's way. But some think they are. Some think they are righteous. And therefore, they're not even open to receiving the physician's help. He says, I've come for those that realize they need me. They need a physician. I got one more video clip for you. Brings this story to light. It's different than Chosen. 
This was done, this was on Netflix. Uh, it was called the Bible Series. And what, in this, they take a little bit of art, artistic license here. There's a parable of the tax collector and the uh, Pharisee praying. It's in Luke 18. What you see here is, in this story, not like Mark's account, they have Jesus tell that parable. Okay? So it's a little different. The way the scriptures are done, they're sometimes chronological, sometimes they're done in an artful way. So there's some bit of license, I suppose, in the film. doesn't exactly matter. The point is the point. I want you to see the story, and he's quoting something from Luke 18 at the same time. So let's bring the lights down, and let's watch this last one again. some kind of close. 
There's something in me that does not want to put a personal application on this. That's how every good sermon is supposed to end, where you instruct us on what do we do with the story? What do I do this week now that I've read this and thought through this? But today, in my opinion, the story is enough. It's enough. Meeting Jesus in these real stories is enough. And so my hope and my prayer is that you would meet him again today. That you'd be drawn to him again today. How could you not be drawn to this special man of history? And know that when you meet this Jesus of Nazareth, you're meeting God. You're meeting God when you meet him. What do I mean by that? I mean this, in Jesus, in these stories, in these interactions, in this kind of love and authority and power and forgiveness, in that, in Jesus, you meet the Almighty, the ineffable, infinite one that we can't even put language to, the one that is so beyond the beyond. But in Jesus, you meet him. That's what we believe. In Jesus' tenderness that you see in this story, you meet God's tenderness. In Jesus' mercy that you see in the story, gets down, son, your sins are forgiven you. You see God's mercy. And Jesus' authority and power to say, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And they're healed. You see God's authority. And absolutely, most certainly, in Jesus' smile and joy, you see the infinite one we call God. There's this verse in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 6, that says it so well. If we can bring it to the screen. It reads, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God. The ineffable, incomprehensible, the one responsible for all reality. In that one, the glory of God says you find in the face of Jesus Christ. What that means is, it means this, if you want to see and know the true glory of God, look no further than the face of The one that you just heard and saw and read about. Look no further if you want to see the glory of God than the face of Jesus Christ. So be drawn to him again today. I end with this. What's your story with Jesus? What's your story? I don't know when it started for you. For me, it was 18. Yours might have been 7, might have been 50. What's your story with him? Everyone has a story 
that's a follower has a story with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Everyone has one that follows him. Peter had a story. Mary of Magdalene had one. What's yours? What's your story with him? There's chapters to it. There's seasons to it. There's emotion to it. There's growth to it. There's, there's things that come to mind and come to heart. There's, there's events. There's moments. There's, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in your story with this one man, this God man, Jesus. Renew your fascination and devotion to him today by God's grace. Realize this, that God opened your eyes to him at some point in your life. You could have been younger or older, but God, by his grace, he gave you the grace to see Jesus Christ as he is. Here's what you need to do today. At your point in the story, I don't know where you are, but at your point in the story, do this. Ask for more grace to see him. Ask for more grace to see him as he is and love him and be devoted to him and follow him and obey him and ultimately worship him. You weren't brilliant. That's not what brought you to Jesus. Grace, God's grace that opened your physical eyes and your spiritual eyes to see how glorious he really is. Ask for more grace and pray. Who are the people in your life that haven't started their story with Jesus yet? Could be a cousin that you really want to follow him and know God and get out of whatever they're into. Get out of some of that suffering they're in or whatever it might be. It could be someone at UGA for you students. It could be a coworker. But that we would be a community that pray for Athens and Oconee that God would pour out the grace so that they could truly see him. Amen? All right. That's enough for today.